uh, there was a, a little group of books which actually I think belonged to my grandfather. Uh, they were uh, a uniform set and they contained tales of mystery and imagination by Edgar and Poe which hugely impressed me and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne. Uh, there was a, a a book by Kipling. I forget the others, but uh, anyway, the Jules Verne uh, book, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, was the first piece of science fiction I read. And uh, I followed the voyage of the Nautilus, the gigantic submarine, powered by electricity, that uh, Captain Nemo had invented and and uh, went around the world, diving from the Atlantic into the Pacific, or the other way around, I forget which, by a tunnel which went under the Isthmus of Panama. But uh, I remember sort of following the, the tracks of the Nautilus on um, on a globe of the world and uh, and um, as a result getting a, a kind of geographical knowledge of the, the major continents and oceans and where they were placed. Anyway, the, uh, I'll read the start of the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. The year was 1866, and signalised by a remarkable incident, a mysterious and inexplicable phenomenon which doubtless no one has yet forgotten, not to mention rumours which agitated the maritime population and excited the public mind, even in the interior of continents, seafaring men were particularly excited. Merchants, common sailors, Captains of vessels, skippers, both of Europe and America, naval officers of all country, and the government of several states on the two continents were deeply interested in the matter. For some time past, vessels had been met by an enormous thing, a long object, spindle-shaped, occasionally phosphorescent, and infinitely larger and more rapid in its movements than a whale. The fact relating to this apparition, entered in various logbooks, agreed in most respects as to the shape of the object, or creature in question, the untiring rapidity of its movements, its surprising powers of locomotion, and the peculiar life with which it seemed endowed. If it was a Katakian, it surpassed in size all these hitherto classified in science. Taking into consideration the mean of observations made at different times, rejecting the timid estimate of those who assigned to this object a length of 200 feet, equally with the exaggerated opinion that this mysterious being surpassed greatly all dimensions admitted by the ichthyologists of the day, if it existed at all, and that it did, if it did exist was an undeniable fact, and with that tendency which disposes the human mind 
in favour of the marvellous, we can understand the excitement produced in the entire world by this supernatural apparition. As to classing it in the list of fables, the idea was out of the question. On the 20th of July, 1866, the steamer Governor Higginson of the Calcutta and and Burnach Steam Navigation Company had met this moving mass five miles off the east coast of Australia. Captain Baker thought at first that he was in the presence of an unknown sandbank. He even prepared to determine its exact position when two columns of water projected by the inexplicable object shot with a hissing noise 150 feet up into the air. Now, unless the sandbank had been submitted to the intermittent eruption of a geyser, the governor Higginson had to do neither more nor less than with an aquatic mammal, unknown till then, which threw up from its blue holes columns of water mixed with air and vapour. Similar facts were observed on the 23rd of July in the same year in the Pacific Ocean by the Columbus of the West India and Pacific Steam Navigation Company. But this extraordinary cataceous creature could transport itself from one place to another with surprising velocity. In an interval of three days, the Governor Higginson and the Columbus had observed it at two different points of the chart, separated by a distance of more than 700 nautical leagues. Of course, the the French professor, and including uh, Ned Land, who's a Canadian harpooner, are sent out in a in a vessel, and uh, they eventually discover the monster, and discover it is in fact a a man-made, human-operated machine and are eventually taken into it and, um, and find that it has been both designed and and built by this mysterious Captain Nemo who has separated himself from the human race. Well, the, as I say, the, uh, the crew that um, went out to find the Nautilus uh, are entertained by Captain Nemo in a sequel to the book we eventually find out that uh, that he was in fact uh, an Indian prince who uh, who lost his kingdom uh, he was uh, one of the leaders of the of what has been called the Indian mutiny by the British government and uh, Anyway, he, he, I mean, he's responsible. And, um, anyway, the the uh, to say I learned my geography from this book. But uh, one of the interesting episodes is one night Captain Nemo invites. Uh, the French professor and Ned Land, the, uh, the 
Canadian harpooner and um, one or two others to an undersea walk in which wearing diving helmets they, uh, they set out on the foot of the Atlantic um, anyway they're uh, walking in darkness under sea is following Captain Nemo and uh, they first climb over a mountain Captain Nemo was still mounting. I could not stay behind. I followed boldly. My stick gave me good help. A false step would have been dangerous on the narrow passes sloping down the sides of the gulfs, but I walked with firm step without feeling any giddiness. Now I jumped a crevice, the depth of which would give me would have made me hesitate had it been among the glaciers on the land. Now I ventured on the unsteady trunk of a tree, thrown across from one abyss to the other, without looking under my feet, having only eyes to admire the wild sights of this region. There, monumental rocks, leaning on their regularly cut bases, seemed to defy all laws of equilibrium. From between their stony knees, trees sprang, like a jet under heavy pressure and upheld others which upheld them. Natural towers, large scarps, cut perpendicularly like a curtain, inclined at an angle with which the laws of gravitation could never have tolerated in terrestrial regions. Two hours after quitting the Nautilus, we had crossed the line of trees, and a hundred feet above our heads rose the top of the mountain, which cast a shadow on the brilliant irradiation of the opposite slope. Some petrified shrubs ran fantastically here and there. Fishes got up under our feet like birds in the long grass. The massive rocks were rent with impenetrable fractures, deep grottos and unfathomable holes, at the bottom of which formidable creatures might be heard moving. My blood curdled when I saw enormous... Antony blocking my road, or some frightful claw closing with a noise in the shadow of some cavity. Millions of luminous spots shone brightly in the midst of the darkness. They were the eyes of giant crustacea crouched in their holes, giant lobsters setting themselves up like halberdiers and moving their claws with the clicking noise of pincers, titanic crabs pointed like a gun on its carriage, and frightful-looking polyps interweaving their tentacles like a living nest of serpents. We had now arrived at the first platform where other surprises awaited me. Before lay some picturesque ruins which betrayed the hand of man and not that of the Creator. There were vast heaps of stone among which might be traced the vague and shadowy forms of castles and temples, clothed with a world of blossoming zoophytes, and over which, instead of ivy, seaweed and fucus threw a thick vegetable mantle. But what was this portion of the globe which had been swallowed by cataclysms? Who had placed those rocks and stones like cromlechs of prehistoric times? Where was I? Whither had Captain Nemo's fancy hurried me? 
I would fain have asked him, but not being able to, I stopped him. I seized his arm, but shaking his head and pointing to the higher point of the mountain, he seemed to say, Come, come along, come higher. I followed, and in a few minutes I had climbed to the top, which for a circle of ten yards commanded the whole mass of rock. I looked down the side we had just climbed. The mountain did not rise more than over eight hundred feet above the level of the plain, but they on the opposite side and commanded from twice that height the depth of this part of the Atlantic. My eyes ranged far over a large space, lit by a violent, a violent fulguration. In fact, the mountain was a volcano. Fifty feet above the peak, in the midst of a rain of stones and scoriae, a large crater was vomiting forth torrents of lava which fell in a cascade of fire into the bosom of the liquid mass. Thus situated, this volcano lit the lower plain like an immense torch, even to the extreme limits of the horizon. I said that the submarine crater threw up lava, but no flames. Flames require the oxygen of the air to feed upon and cannot be developed under water, but streams of lava, having themselves the principles in themselves the principles of their incandescence, can attain a white heat, fight vigorously against the liquid element, and turn it to vapour by contact. Rapid currents bearing all these gases in diffusion and torrents of lava slid to the bottom of the mountain like an eruption of Vesuvius on another Terra del Greco. There indeed under my eyes, ruined, destroyed, lay a town, its roofs open to the sky, its temples fallen, its arches dislocated, its columns lying on the ground, from which one could still recognise the massive character of Tuscan architecture. Further on, some remains of a gigantic aqueduct, here the high base of an acropolis, with the floating outline of a Parthenon. There, traces of a quay, as if an ancient port had formerly abutted on the borders of the ocean and disappeared with its merchant ships and its war galleys. Further on again, long lines of sunken walls and broad deserted streets a perfect Pompeii escaped beneath the waters. Such was the sight that Captain Nemo brought before my eyes. Where was I? Where was I? I must know at any cost. I tried to speak, but Captain Nemo stopped me by a gesture, and picking up a piece of chalk stone, advanced to a rock in black basalt, and traced the one word, Atlantis. Atlantis.